Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. Uh, I'm here. Uh, I'm, I am not the walrus. The only reason I'm telling you that <laughs> is that apparently I've been told some people are a little concerned about me. You know, I'm here. I'm live on Thursday. Um, how do I establish that it, what day it is? Uh, the Red Sox won last night behind a very good Chris Sale pitching performance. I think it was 4-2. All right. So uh, we're going to talk about outer space today. And as we go along, I'll tell you about some of the things we'll be talking about later in the show. Uh, first of all, you might have missed this. Frankly, I think I might have missed this the first time around. But President Trump uh, has created or proposed the creation of a space force, which I know sounds kind of animated, uh, but it's not. Uh, and it would be a sixth branch of the military. And, well, we'll tell you what it would purportedly do and whether or not we think it's a good idea. You can probably guess whether we think it's a good idea or not. So um, we're also going to tell you a little bit later. I mean, we've talked about this on the show in the past, but uh, there's a lot of junk up there. And unlike a lot of litter, it's hard to pick up because it's moving at very high speeds. It's hard and dangerous and moving faster than a Concorde jet would. So how do you pick up that litter? And who wants to do it? Spoiler, nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to pay to do it. But it actually makes it kind of hard to do anything else in space because it's increasingly dangerous. If you saw the movie Gravity, you, you may get an idea. There's just stuff flying around up there that can puncture your Elon Musk airborne Tesla. But to begin, and the overarching theme here is, I think, how do we not be jerks in space? We've established that we can be jerks uh, here on the ground, that we can pollute our environment, that we can create dangerous situations, that we can be unkind to one another. Um, We've established all those things. Nobody questions our ability to be unkind or to pollute or to create dangerous situations. The question is, do we want to export all that stuff into space or do we want to be slightly better versions of ourselves? And we're going to argue for that latter option. And to get us started is a guy who often gets us started. In fact, he got us started thinking about this particular show. Jonathan Keats making his 153rd uh, appearance on our show. Artist, writer, and experimental philosopher from San Francisco, California, author of the book You Belong to the Universe. Um, He has been working on uh, the question of, well, I mean, one of the ways— Uh, Well, let me put it another way. It could be that the first contact we have with extraterrestrial life, uh, partly because of Jonathan, will be somebody saying, hey, could you turn that down? Whoever's playing the gamma ray bells and the gravitational shallow, could you please turn that down? We're trying to study up here, whatever it is they do up there. Uh, Because, in fact, one of the things we're going to need to do is have cultural exchanges with anybody that we meet out in outer space, out in the remainder of the universe that does not involve us. Uh, And so Jonathan Keats has created, among other things, something called intergalactic omniphonics and the world's first Copernican Orchestra. If you've ever heard Jonathan on our show before, you know that he will have perfectly plausible explanations for all this. And so let's get him going right now. Jonathan Keats, welcome back. 
great to be on the show again. So um, I don't know how good a job I did in uh, setting all this up, uh, but so you can probably do a much better job. But the whole idea really is, first of all, that if we wanted to have some kind of musical exchange um, with uh, extraterrestrial life forms, the first thing we have to do is get past our idea of what music is, check our acoustic privilege, and realize that not everybody has ears. I really like this term, acoustic privilege. I think I'm going to start using it myself. I, I believe that there's a lot that goes into our culture and our music as a part of it that is based on assumptions that make us incapable of really communicating with others. Mm. And that's especially the case when you start talking about little green men or whatever form of other might be out in Andromeda or beyond. And I don't profess to know who or what they are, but I wanted to figure out at the level of music, which seems like it's pretty universal here on Earth, how could I make it universal in the real sense of the word throughout the entire universe? How could I create instruments and compositions that would be effective and viable and even compelling throughout the entire universe. Now, um, to the extent that you're walking in the footsteps of giants, um, this has been thought about a few times before, including by the great scientist Steven Spielberg. So in, in Close Encounters, there is this whole, whole thing that combines not only the very familiar musical pattern, buh, 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 with Kodai uh, hand signals and stuff like that, um, you're going a little bit further. Because the, the real question is, not only would it be nice if we could, quote-unquote, play something out there for people, for other life forms to, quote, hear, unquote, uh, but it would also be kind of cool if they could play it back to us. And and there really is no particular reason to suppose that they can play back to us. You might have to find something more universal, right? Well, or even, even that they would want to do so. I mean, it seems to me a little bit arrogant on our part to think that basically they are mockingbirds that are going to throw back our way whatever it is that we threw out there. If we're really going to communicate, it means something that's a lot more profound. And I think that one of the most profound things I've ever heard is, for instance, jazz musicians jamming together, the way in which you have this tightly interlocked way of multiple voices and I use voice in the broadest sense of the word, all interacting with each other. That's, that's real communication. And what we've done so far as a species is, well, we've sent records out into space. Uh, they're golden, and that's all well and good, though they do have, uh, I'm speaking of the Voyager record here, an introductory statement by the, I believe, the only Nazi ever to have been the Secretary General of the United Nations, Kurt Waldheim. Mm -hmm. And they also, I think, as significantly or even more so, are basically just telling them about us. And that's usually the way in which it goes, is that we, we're like the bores at a bar who want to talk only about ourselves. I wanted to figure out what could we create in the way of media and the way of a, a, a venues of, uh, of systems that would facilitate a true exchange, a real back and forth. And that meant getting rid of a lot of assumptions about our sensory organs, as you say, that we have ears, but maybe they don't. Maybe they don't sense sound waves in the first place. And also their cognitive abilities, which may be very different from ours. Their experience certainly would be. 
So what do you create in terms of the substance of some sort of musical basis for having an exchange with them? And then what kind of instruments might be plausible that would extend through enough of the territory that might be musically meaningful or musically carry ideas that you might actually be able to engage those without ears, those that cannot hear anything at all. Right. So, I mean, we, we can start with ears, though. So, when, I mean, even if we're going to assume that they have some kind of auditory sensory organ, it, it probably doesn't work exactly the way that ours does. There's lots of life forms right here on Earth that hear at different frequencies. So you've got an ultrasonic uh, organ, right, something that can uh, pitch it high and pitch it low? Well, it pitches only high, only actually. High. Okay. Uh, low still needs to be resolved. So dogs, for instance, can hear around 45 kilohertz, which is considerably more than the 20 kilohertz that our ears pop out at. And so it's entirely possible that there are creatures that don't hear as low as 20 kilohertz and that therefore we need to have musical instruments that are well above our hearing range. And there are actually such instruments. They're called dog whistles. So I went onto eBay and I bought a whole bunch of dog whistles. But I didn't want just to signify to aliens that they should sit and, uh, I don't know, sit up and beg. I wanted to make an instrument that actually could convey and operate musically. So I took a bunch of dog whistles and I converted them into an organ where the dog whistles are organ pipes and where each one of them has a stop that allows you to a valve effectively that allows you to alter its tone so that together you can end up with pretty complex ultrasonic music. Um, there are other instruments that, that you've uh, created. Uh, I don't know. You can just maybe pick another one. There's the gravitational cello that I mentioned. There's the gamma ray bells. There's the x-ray piano. Just pick one of them and kind of describe it. Sure. Uh, there actually is not yet an x-ray piano, oh. so any listeners out there who happen to have a spare x-ray machine, please get in touch. Yeah. Uh, what I've, In general, what I've thought about is the fact that Sound is not the only way in which to make music. Music really is all about frequency and amplitude over time. That's how musical ideas are expressed from Beethoven to Taylor Swift. So anything that actuates frequency and amplitude and allows you to vary those over time allows you to communicate musical ideas, which opens up a lot of possibilities. First of all, the entire electromagnetic spectrum. You could work with visible light, but that would be rather boring, and it's been done. Actually, back in the 1700s, there were light organs. But I thought about going well beyond. So, for instance, working with, with gamma rays, where I made bells that use radioisotopes that are inclusive of radium, taking an old radium watch dial, and uranium, taking an old uranium marble, once again, courtesy of eBay, and by selectively exposing those radioisotopes, it's possible to expose the particular frequencies of those types of matter, and therefore to allow the bells to ring in the 10 exahertz range. I've also, just very briefly, I've gone farther, and I guess to really the latest cutting-edge science right now, thinking about gravitational waves, which once again, can certainly operate in terms of frequency and amplitude. In fact, that's how we've been able to detect them and to validate a hypothesis made by Einstein a very long time ago. So I've created 
a couple instruments, one of which is a gravitational cello that doesn't use orbiting black holes or neutron stars. I didn't have access to either one. Once again, if you have any listeners who do, get in touch, please. I instead am working at a much, much lower amplitude using ball bearings that are actuated very precisely using a an instrument that by the subtle movement of your body allows you to change the frequency by changing the rotation of the bearing and as a result to actually perform in gravitational terms that might be accessible to aliens with very very sensitive gravitational apparatus that we don't have that therefore we only can experience indirectly but that might be just what hits the spot just what gets them excited and gets them in the mood to jam with us right so that's what we really want is i mean as you say there's been kind of a unidirectional unidirectional attitude towards culture hey here's neil diamond you're gonna love it he's not actually a diamond that's his name uh and you know what you're suggesting is that i mean and we did a show with some jazz musicians recently where they really did kind of explain that yeah okay so i heard what you did there with the ball bearings you know and so let me see if i can kind of develop that a little bit uh in my own way and kind of send it back at you and and so that's the thing that you're hoping for because it's it's much more collaborative and and bi-directional and you tried to do it, I guess, yourself a little bit, too. There's this so-called uh, wow signal. Uh, maybe you can explain that and explain uh, what you did with it. Sure. So back in 1977, as the Big Ear radio telescope was scanning the sky, a signal was detected, and it was far more powerful than the background noise of the universe. Um, orders of magnitude greater, and it's never been explained. And it goes by the name, the wow signal, because the scientist who was looking at the data sheet, which was back in the time basically a dot matrix printed uh, sheet of paper, uh, circled this and wrote the word wow with an exclamation point in the margin. And so 1977, it's a long time ago, and it's a very long time for scientists either to rule it out, saying that it was one or another astronomical phenomenon, or to figure out exactly what was being communicated, and if in fact it was an alien signal. And I don't know. Nobody knows. And that's what led me to think that maybe we need to be a bit broader in terms of how we interpret it, how we understand it, that maybe instead of the parameters that scientists typically tend to use in terms of analyzing a signal, which is to look for uh, mathematical properties that essentially the aliens are giving us a crib sheet on the Pythagorean theorem, that instead maybe what we picked up on was a concert happening, well, in the constellation Sagittarius, as it turns out. And so perhaps I could transcribe it in a way that would make it musically accessible to us on an instrument such as a piano. So that's what I did. And I did so on the basis of the improbability, or rather the uncertainty, of the various aspects of that signal, which are across multiple channels at different frequencies, and took that and created a piece that the performer plays until they reach a personal sense of 
certainty about what the music actually was and what that music might be and therefore what might be the basis for us to interact with it and perhaps to build upon it. Right. And, you know, I mean, if they wonder why it took so long, you can just tell them that the only person who heard their signal was Brian Wilson, and it just takes them a long time to work on projects like this. All right, we're going to play a little bit uh, of um, the the sort of the wow answer uh, coming from Jonathan Keats and from Earth right here. There's a party in the Milky Way. Miley Cyrus is going to get us through this. She's the one being that they they all understand. Um, so um, uh, just very quickly, because uh, we're going to run out of time. You've got so many different things going on here. Um, we should say that one of the things that you decided that everybody would understand, by everybody I mean not just us, but whoever's out there, would be something like entropy, right? Because the second law of thermodynamics, as far as we know, doesn't vary that much. Things uh, are decaying. Things are disintegrating. Uh, the center does not hold. So you've tried to basically make that kind of a musical theme? That's right. I wanted to compose as well. And I wanted to compose what seemed to me something that would be accessible to any being anywhere in the universe, regardless of their experience, regardless of their cognitive ability, everything other than making the assumption that they're in the same universe as we are. And any betting physicist will bet on the second law of thermodynamics, which basically is the law that makes it so that when you pour milk into your coffee, it goes from milk and coffee to a beige kind of mix that you can't reverse. And that's basically a good description of the universe as well. But life is actually operating in the opposite direction. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a universal anthem, kind of the opposite of national anthems, which are really all about exclusivity, all about us. It's uh, basically a, a xenophobic nationalist phenomenon. I wanted to create an anthem that would be universal in the sense of being inclusive and encouraging inclusiveness. So I took thermodynamics as a basis because it seemed like it was something that we all would have in common and would all be able to, to, to understand and use it as both the structure and the substance of a work that is really about being alive. That is to say, taking the fact that life runs entropy in reverse, albeit briefly, that when we're alive, we're extracting energy from the universe in order to create internal order, structure within us, only then to die and disintegrate and re-contribute whatever remains to the universe itself. Creating a work where you have an orchestra with a solo multiple solos over time, each in a different voice, including ultrasonic organ, for instance, or gravitational cello, that those voices are running entropy in reverse against the backdrop of an orchestra that's running entropy in the same old way that the universe always does. That that might actually be something that could potentially operate as a counterbalance to xenophobia throughout the universe, 
which may well be the case. I've never been to another planet. I don't know. But it certainly is the case here on Earth. And I think that more broadly, that's kind of at least part of what motivates what I'm doing here. I'm very interested in all aliens everywhere, but I'm particularly interested in the situation of aliens as in illegals and as in refugees here on Earth and how by reaching all the way out there and finding ways that we might communicate, ways that we might find common ground all the way out to Andromeda and beyond, maybe that also serves as a means to do so here closer to home. Well, Jonathan, I can't believe that you don't think that a lyric based on one man's very specific experiences in the War of 1812 and set to a British drinking song wouldn't play well all over the universe. Uh, But um, I think your point's a good one. I mean, the, the concern, I think, is we've gotten so bad here on Earth at saying, welcome, <laughs> and we've got to each other in, in all the ways that you're suggesting, and we've gotten so good at insisting on borders, national borders, and it's not just us, there's nationalism all over the world uh, now, and in reinforcing those borders and keeping people out and pulling out of the European Union and all this kind of stuff. It, 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 it's, it's optimistic to say that if we do it in outer space, maybe we'll get it uh, right here on planet Earth, but I guess that is what you're saying. Well, I'm saying that it's not just about doing it in outer space, meaning while there are instruments that are for other sensory systems beyond our own, there also are instruments in the Universal Orchestra, the Copernican Orchestra, as I call it, that I recently founded at the University of North Carolina in Asheville, where these instruments have initially been used, that there are also instruments that are well within our own hearing range. So we are also part of that entire system that is part of the target audience for the Universal Anthem and part of the target audience for those jam sessions. And so what I'm suggesting is that, yes, if we have the opportunity to jam with certifiable aliens in the sense of being aliens from outer space, that might actually be a very powerful means by which to find the commonalities that we have here on Earth, and to reinforce those and to get over all the barriers and borders and all the tribalism that is effectively making us a Ptolemaic culture as opposed to a Copernican one. But even if we don't, we can still, just by the act of making these instruments and by performing on them, that we can get that idea in our heads to begin with. Uh, To me, really, what this is fundamentally about is using music, because music is so popular, as a way in in which to infiltrate culture, to bring about a revolution that happened 500 years ago in the sciences, the Copernican Revolution, going from a geocentric model to a heliocentric model, going from being at the middle of it all to being nowhere special, nothing special in space or in time, that that kind of decentering seems to me exactly what is needed right now in the political sphere, in the cultural, in the societal realm. And so I'm trying to foment a Copernican revolution in the arts, fundamentally, to get outside of this sense of being special, of being at the center of it all, and in so doing, to encourage that sort of a paradigm shift culturally, societally, politically, to move away from this way in which we have right now of being the bullies, to actually find some way in which we can all jam together. 
All right. Jonathan Keats, has been great to talk to you. We will put other information about Jonathan Keats and what his projects are and how you can help and whether you can uh, lend him your x-ray piano or if you have a black hole or a hell mouth in the parking lot of your office park. Uh, Jonathan is always interested in things like that. So we'll show you how to get in touch with him. You just have to go to WNPR slash Colin, where we keep all of our shows. Meanwhile, Notwithstanding uh, Jonathan's moving and inspiring speech, we're going to talk about sending military forces up into space and whether or not that's a good idea. All right, we're back. It's Thursday. I keep saying that. And you might be listening to it on a completely different day or in a different part of the universe for that go, for, as far as that goes. But the Red Sox have won nine straight. I figured out, figured out how I can prove it's actually Thursday. All right. Uh, we're now uh, – our theme today is how can we avoid being jerks in space given what jerks we often are here on land, uh, here on planet Earth. And so uh, we're going to move on from what Jonathan was talking about to the idea of having some kind of dedicated military space force. And joining us to talk about that is Brian Nakayama, visiting lecturer in international relations at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, author of the upcoming book, From Aerospace to Cyberspace, The Evolution of Military Domains. But before we get Brian going, and just so you know, we're not making this up, uh, let's hear the president of the United States. It is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process to establish a space force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. All right, there you go. Well, uh, Brian Nakayama, first of all, welcome to our show. And second of all, this, you know, this is maybe a new way of talking about it, but not entirely a new idea. Those of us who lived through the 1980s remember the Strategic Defense Initiative, better known as Ronald Reagan's Star Wars project. I mean, there, there's a history to the idea of militarizing space, correct? Uh, hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. And yeah. yes, indeed, there is a long history stretching back to uh, at least the 1920s, uh, trying to consider the various military uses of space. And, um, you know, but I think that Trump's suggestion is substantially different from something like the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was, uh, you know, fairly conscious about putting, you know, lasers into space and building, uh, you know, space cruisers, whereas um, he's focusing much more on some, you know, large scale organizational change, much like the creation of the Air Force following World War II. Right. He wants to have, an, uh, as he says, a sixth branch yeah. of the military. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'll admit that I have some concerns about that. And that's because it's uh, fundamentally unclear what a space force would do that would be, you know, a value added if we're not pursuing plans to actually fight warfare within space itself. Well, this doesn't take place in a vacuum, even though space is a vacuum. Uh, there's an actual, uh, there are treaties in place, or at least an outer space treaty. What does that say about what uh, nations can or can't do in outer space? Yeah, so so the outer space treaty, uh, you know, dates back to 1968 and was partly a reaction to the fact that uh, the United States enjoyed uh, detonating nuclear weapons in space, which caused a variety of issues. But in any case, um, the Outer Space Treaty 
explicitly prohibits the use of, um, you know, atomic weapons or other weapons of mass destruction in space or the stationing of troops on celestial bodies. And it, you know, kind of articulates this broad conception that space should be for mutual benefit. And the text actually literally says the exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries and shall be the province of all mankind. Of course, I wonder whether the use of the word countries might be a little bit outdated. I mean, I'm thinking of one of the next wars in space could just as easily be between, I don't know, Comcast and Frontier. I mean, they've all got commercial satellites up there with transponders. Um, who's to say that countries alone, anyway, are going to be causing all the problems up there? Yeah, no, that's, that's certainly a good question and will become increasingly important as, you know, space both becomes more crowded um, as well as the, you know, as more and more commercial industry moves into space, because I think the question of commercial activity in space really brings up like, you know, the question of exclusivity and who is able to control various resources or, you know, actual, you know, the space in space. I guess what I'm wondering also, Brian, is, I mean, is this a horse that we can never get back in the barn again? I mean, the fact that the president is talking about this um, and, and really the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, it's not as though they've never given any thought to space, you know, in the last 20 years anyway. I, there's some way in which it probably will be a battleground, particularly because so many militaries from all over the all over the world use space as the linchpin of their communication systems. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. But, you know, I think the the fundamental question that goes along with the Space Force is whether space is going to be weaponized. And there's a distinction between militarization and weaponization. Space is currently militarized insofar as you point out, uh, you know, militaries are so highly dependent on it. But the question is whether, uh, you know, kind of active weapons will be placed into space. As of now, anti-satellite weapons are generally launched from the ground or from aircraft. And, you know, there's a real question as to whether that's a distinct enough activity that it merits an entirely new service branch, uh, much like the Air Force, as President Trump made the comparison. Well, I mean, I'm assuming that if one country, I mean, even as things stand, if one country were to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile at another country, it would have to go through space. I don't know whether that violates the treaty or not, since the, the kaboom happens someplace else. Yeah, no, I think I think that's where the, the kind of trickiness of um, the Outer Space Treaty comes in, is that it prohibits the stationing and detonation in space. So, you know, the kind of uh, transit at the upper bound of the arc of a ballistic missile is fine under the terms of the treaty. And so, you know, that was the original inspiration for the Strategic Defense Initiative, which you raised earlier, was the idea that you can intercept missiles in space much easier than when they're, you know, kind of raining down from the sky. Brian, is there, I'm trying to uh, find a silver lining, not in a cloud, but in uh, in outer space. And I mean, I wondered if, it, if there is anything to be said for the idea that if, in fact, we decided or, or internationally it were decided that, you know, a very effective way for one country to fight another would be to try to knock out their communication systems, put weapons out there, knock out your comm systems, uh, you know, do other kinds of things that are very disruptive in outer space. Any fight that's going on in outer space then is maybe going on a little bit less down here on the planet where we live and breathe. Is there any argument for pushing some of this hostility out into space or is the downside too big? You know, amusingly enough, that was actually the core argument of the, the paper that started the Strategic Defense Initiative is that it actually makes more sense to have these fights in outer space. 
Um, and I think that, you know, there's something to be said for the idea that if you move aggression off of Earth where people can easily die, uh, <laughs> well, people do die, of course, um, then you can, you know, kind of decrease the risk to human life. But I think it also threatens more fundamentally, you know, the ability to use space, you know, some sort of exchange in space that destroys satellites could create a debris field which prevents future exploration. And, you know, and that is in addition to the fact that, you know, if a satellite or, you know, some sort of space system crashes to Earth, the fuel that it uses is highly toxic. So it's not as if it's totally clean. Um, you know, a satellite crashing into a city could potentially kill a lot of people, not just from direct impact, but actually from the uh, hydrazine fuel that it uses. Um in the past, Brian, uh, when we have been trying avidly to kill one another and other people have been trying to kill us, um, it has been a spur to innovation. So at the end of World War II, we had all these new technologies, not just nuclear weaponry, but, you know, chromatography and spectrometry and, you know, all kinds of things that we had just almost accidentally developed because we were so eager to be technologically superior to, to our enemies. Uh, is there any thought? I mean, this is sort of wild speculation. But one wonders what would come out of the militarization of space, whether we, you know, get better frying pans or something. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a that's a really good point. And, um, you know, kind of an underknown aspect of military space history is that the Air Force basically built a space shuttle in the 1960s that was amusingly enough called Dinosaur. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, clearly the militarization of space, um, you know, can boost innovation. Potentially, but the question is, first of all, at what cost? And then second of all, NASA, which was, you know, its mission was uh, committed to the civilian and peaceful uses of space, was also a major driver of innovation, which, you know, looking at that period of the 1960s seems to be more uh, an extension of the massive investment that the United States federal government made into basic and applied research. So, uh, Brian Nakayama, when you hear the, the clip we played at the beginning, the president announcing this idea, he has ideas, he wants them done fast, he picks somebody to be in charge of them. I, once again, this calls for speculation, as they say in court. But um, I don't know. What's the timeline after that? It's one thing to have a press conference to say we're going to do something. Uh, I, I'm not sure how soon any part of that vision could be realized. Yeah, it, it, to be honest, it's not it's not clear because the announcement was so vague. And from what I understand from reporting was actually kind of off the cuff and unexpected. Um, you know, hence, you know, he kind of looked for the through the room to find the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to get him to agree to the plan. Um, and so it's incredibly vague, but there is going to be a study coming in August um, that would, you know, discuss whether a space force is necessary uh, given that Trump is the commander in chief of the U.S. armed forces, it's likely that it will conclude, yes, that a space force is uh, necessary. And then there's going to be another study that's going to come in December, which is going to discuss, um, you know, what what that will look like. Um, of course, the, you know, given that the creation of a space force is a change to the United States military on the scale of the creation of the Air Force in 1947, um, you know, it needs congressional approval. And uh, during the debates over the 2017, you know, national defense bill, there was an attempt to create something like a space corps akin to the Marine Corps. However, that was stripped out of the 2017 national defense bill in the Senate because, you know, the secretary of defense, the secretary of the Air Force and uh, many powerful members of the Senate are opposed to the plan. 
So there's going to be a big fight if it's going to come to fruition. And of course, we know the way the world works, Brian. Uh, the next thing that happens is if Trump has the space force, I need five space forces. Get me space. Yep. I mean, we're going to have an arms race uh, in space if this becomes anything. If it really starts to look like a real thing as opposed to something shouted out at a press conference. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think uh, that's that's definitely true. States tend to develop militaries in you know, kind of a tit for tat fashion. And certainly the actual creation of a space force would invite response from, you know, China and Russia, which are the other two states that have major military interests in space. Right. I mean, you know, even when we are suspicious of Russia in the past, we've been able to partner with them in outer space. But I think it's hard to have a partnership uh, if you're developing military capabilities. Um, So we'll see. Well, Brian Nakayama, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Visiting lecturer in international relations right up the road at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, author of the upcoming book, From Aerospace to Cyberspace, The Evolution of Military Domains. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Colin. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with our final topic. Uh, Is just going to be another mess. We've actually made another fine mess. Who's going to clean it up? Just like the land, the air, and sea. We have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Space Force. Uh, My new national strategy could be Space Force, Space, Space, Space Force, Space Force, Space. Hey, Martian guy, we recycle egg cartons. What's he doing with an egg carton anyway? Today's show was produced by Starfleet Commander Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Jason Perez. Part of Bill Curry was played by Gates McFadden. On tomorrow's show, The Nose tackles a new HBO series. And now. Back to Colin. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort. Debris from the missile strike has caused a chain reaction, hitting other satellites and creating new debris, traveling faster than a high-speed bullet up to a your full-on chain reaction. It's been confirmed that it's the unintentional side effect of the Russians striking one of their own satellites. They shut down their own satellites. Kowalski visual of debris at 9 o'clock. Debris chain reaction is out of control. That is uh, Sandra Bullock screaming there, and that is Quaron's movie Gravity, which deals a little bit anyway with the problem of uh, stuff floating around in outer space. And there's sort of a segue from our preceding segment to where we are now, uh, because, uh, in fact, one of the things that would happen if we weaponized space, if we started blowing up other people's satellites, is there'd be even more junk, uh, jagged-edged, very uh, hard, fast-moving pieces of stuff flying around in space. And guess what? There's already a real lot of that stuff. Uh, Mason Peck is joining us right now, Associate Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Cornell University and former Chief Technologist at NASA. Mason Peck, welcome to our conversation. It's great to be with you, Colin. All right. So that's uh, a fictional movie. But that part of the movie, I got the feeling, you know, had had some some truth to it, too, that there's already a lot of stuff just whizzing around up there at very high speeds. That's, uh, among other things, just sort of dangerous to other people up there trying to stay intact. That's certainly true. Uh, I remember seeing that movie and thinking that they'd successfully explained in a few seconds and with uh, some great CGI this thing called the Kessler syndrome, which is that cascading effect of debris hitting other debris. The thing is that the Kessler syndrome, as we understand it, probably takes decades, uh, not minutes. 
But you know, the, I think the impression you get of the again the cascading effect is about right. That is happening now. In fact, we've seen an uptick in uh, debris collisions, and that's probably what we're looking at. Right. So the Kessler effect, we should say, it, it posits that if this keeps happening, 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 what you wind up with is sort of a, a cloud of debris, almost like we'd have an, uh, an outer space version of those uh, horrible plastic floating islands the size of continents out there in the oceans. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, orbital debris is kind of like the plastic bag or set of plastic bags in, in uh, Earth's oceans. But it's, it's also true that, uh, you know, even the smallest pieces of debris matter. Uh, there's a relatively small number out there right now, but some are large rocket bodies, uh, defunct satellites, so massive that when they begin to break up, and they will eventually if we do nothing about it, they'll form thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of individual pieces of bullet-sized, in fact, faster than bullet, pieces of debris. Um, debris is a hard thing to keep track of. Do we actually really know uh, what's up there right now and what condition it's in and which things have broken into pieces and which things haven't? Yes and no. Uh, we know the large bodies. They're easy to track with radar and even some optical means. Uh, we know objects that are down to the size of about a grapefruit, maybe even a little bit smaller. And that represents most of the mass, just the, the, just the sheer stuff that's up in orbit. We know about that uh, thanks to the good work of the U.S. Air Force and, and others. But we don't know the little bits of grit, the little grains of sand, the paint flecks. Uh, you might know that uh, routinely the space shuttle would come back from orbit with paint flecks embedded in its windshield. It'll have to be replaced. Uh, so this has been going on for a while, and those little objects we just can't track. We have a sense of the statistics of them. We know the odds of collisions, at least we think we do. But let's remember that it's not all man-made. There are micrometeoroids out there. There are even uh, larger objects coming from elsewhere in the solar system and beyond. Uh, that also has an impact. So as, you know, not only nations and uh, space programs, but now private companies start thinking about going into outer space, um, the more of the stuff that gets created, the more hazardous it becomes. You just said we know the odds or we think we know the odds. Uh, I mean, at the moment, how much of a sort of belt of hazard is there whirling around out there? Depends where you go. Uh, low Earth orbit, there's been a lot of uh, lot of activity there. So we're talking about a few hundred miles above the surface of the Earth, uh, somewhere in a band, maybe a few hundred to a thousand or less. Uh, that's where most of that debris lives at the moment. And if you go a little bit farther out, in fact, quite a bit farther, about uh, 38,000, 36,000 kilometers out, that's the geostationary belt. That's where the large communication satellites and some other military spacecraft are. Uh, there's also stuff up there. Fortunately for geostationary orbit, it's pretty easy to get things out of the way. You nudge those satellites to a higher orbit, maybe a couple hundred kilometers higher than the actual orbit uh, of geo, and then it's out of the way forever. But really, we're talking about low Earth orbit and the prospect of a, a sheath or a cloud of this debris around the Earth. Uh, as, your, as your previous guest, Brian Nakayama, said, uh, that can actually curtail exploration in the future if we're not careful. And as you pointed out, uh, there's commercial activity just starting up that probably uh, would uh, will suffer if we can't clean this up. Right. And so uh, when we talk about cleaning things up, I mean, now we're talking about things of all different sizes and in, in a, an environment where, you know, a, a paint fleck can uh, damage a, a window, uh, where a micrometeor can pierce uh, a spacesuit. Uh, we're talking about a, a pretty interesting cleanup proposition. And I would assume one that nobody wants to pay for, right? It's going to cost money to get that stuff out of there. Uh, it isn't um, a sexy project. Uh, I'm assuming there's no nation or international body lining up to pay for that. There certainly isn't. Uh, and I would add that 
just like so many other environmental cleanup problems, it's much more costly to clean it up than to mitigate it in the first place. You know, if we had been better stewards of space, uh, as we are now, by the way, I should say that we're getting much better, more responsible at keeping things out of, uh, out of Earth orbit. If we had been better at it earlier, uh, we would not have the problem we have right now. So cleaning it up is going to be much more expensive than causing the problem in the first place. And let's be clear, the problem was caused by, uh, I think, sincere uh, efforts to put things into space that were useful and then save a buck or two by not bothering to deorbit them. It was cheaper just to leave it up there. At the time, the notion was space is big. It's really big. So what's the problem? Uh, and now we know what the problem is. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be very expensive to clean it up. Uh, it is almost certainly not a profit-making enterprise. Uh, that is, there's no market for that debris. At least at the moment, we're not making things in space. We may someday, but at the moment, we're not making them there. So uh, the only source of revenue for any company or maybe even some other agency who might do this is from a government or maybe international uh, consortium of governments. Uh, maybe the UN needs to run this thing. But it's, you're absolutely right that it's going to take money, and it's probably government money. Um, one of the things, one of the misconceptions I had before we get going on this show, uh, Mason, was the idea in my head that nobody knows how to do this. Um, that's not necessarily the case, that there's no technology in the works that could be helpful. Maybe you could mention one or two of the ideas that are out there. Sure. You know, it turns out that the technology is actually not the hardest part of this. It's just the combination of will and finances <laughs> that really is preventing this from happening. There's been a lot of ideas over the years. Uh, there's a Swiss company called Clean Space One. It's a tiny space janitor, I guess you could call it. Um, it's The idea is that would sidle up to a spacecraft, grab another one, pull it back into Earth. It sounds like a simple solution, uh, simple, but the fact is, when you launch something into space, you have to give it the same energy that you gave that initial piece of debris to begin with. And if we're talking about a large rocket body, and those, those are really the, the things to worry about, you have to launch another massive rocket just to deorbit that one. In fact, probably even a larger uh, spacecraft to deorbit the smaller one. Uh, so that's one idea, just to grab it, pull it back in. Another approach would be uh, to shine high-powered lasers at the debris, not necessarily to break it up, although that's been proposed, but maybe to nudge it a little bit. It turns out that the, the photons, the, the actual light of a laser, carries a little bit of momentum, and you can push things around. So that's one possibility. It's also true if you broke the pieces up into smaller ones, uh, they would tend to re-enter faster, so that's maybe a, an advantage there. There are other ideas like great big nets. Uh, now, I should say I teach a spacecraft design course at Cornell, and it might not surprise you to learn that when you give undergrads the chance to mm -hmm. design an orbital debris removal system, the first thing they think is great big net. Uh, and there are also people seriously considering doing that. Uh, the great big net, the problem is you've got to grab these objects that are traveling very, very fast. And I don't think a great big net is necessarily the best way to do it. But once you grabbed it, it's relatively easy to bring it back. Uh, in low Earth orbit, uh, the technology to remove something, to bring it down, is actually easy. If we wait long enough, anything's going to fall back into orbit due to drag with the upper atmosphere. So that's actually not that hard either. One idea that goes along with the great big net, uh, one's called the Electrodynamic Debris Eliminator, or EDI, by Star Incorporated. The idea there is that you'd also have a long piece of wire hanging off their spacecraft. Now, uh, as you drag this wire through the Earth's ionosphere, through its magnetic field, uh, there's a force that acts on it that actually draws things back into, into the atmosphere. So there are ways to make this happen, uh, 
But again, it's not so much the technology. It's really more the money. Right. And and I guess we're almost out of time here. But um, I assume we're getting, you sort of hinted at this, we're getting less stupid about this, right? I mean, in 2007, uh, the Chinese government wanted to uh, get a weather satellite uh, out of uh, orbit. And so they tried to shoot it down, right? There, there's a variety of speculation about just what happened there, but uh, most people see it as an attempt by the Chinese to show that they can destroy another satellite. Uh, whether or not there was a specific objective in that test, the, the bigger picture is if you can remove orbital debris, you can also remove someone's active satellites. And that enters a whole other realm of militarization of space. Uh, that's one reason why we, uh, the U.S. at least, un- until recently, have stayed out of it. The optics or the appearance of developing these technologies is that we're also doing something that's militarily uh, aggressive. And we don't want to be seen doing that. No. And, and obviously also don't want to be creating even more debris. Uh, when we do it, if we're going to invest a lot of money in some of these other ideas, it kind of yeah, doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense. That's true. About a third of the debris up there right now is actually the result of that one Chinese test. Huh. So that was, a uh, <laughs> let's say, a mistake. Something not to repeat. Bad China. Bad China. Well, Mason Peck, thank you so much for joining us. Associate Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Cornell University and former Chief Technologist at NASA. Thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Colin. And thanks to everybody else who helped out. This was a Josh Nalea jam. Uh, it all started, as so many things do on our show, with an email from Jonathan Keats. Got us thinking about all these other questions. They're important questions, too. Thanks to Wolfie for being on the vo- board today. Jason Perez, our uh, intern, is helping out with our telecommunications system right here on the ground. He's Houston, I guess. Jason is Houston today. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back tomorrow with a brand new live nose that will feature, among other things, John Nankoski as a panelist. Even a toenail would cut off